guest this week is Elvis Costello, who has just released his 26th studio album, recording either under his own name or with the Attractions or the Imposters, and this time it's the latter. And in fact, the album is titled The Boy Named If and Other Children's Stories. And while it's not a concept album, it does come with a book if you get the deluxe copy. And uh, as Elvis says, for those who like to hold something more substantial in their hands, the album can also be found tucked into an 88-page hardback storybook edition, each one numbered and signed by him. And the edition features 13 illustrated short stories, which have the same titles as the songs on the record. Some of the fables set the scene for the songs, others are sequels or a clue or a hint to what might have been going on before the music began. And the lyrics can be found in bold print there as well. So it's a real collector's item. The album produced by Sebastian Chris and Elvis Costello, available on CD, album, vinyl. Uh, I think it's coming out on cassette as well. Might even be on 8-track at some stage. And I caught up with Elvis uh, before Christmas to have a chat about the album. And let's hear the first single released from the album. This is a song called Magnificent Hurt. Then we'll talk to Elvis Costello. Is this the tour over? Uh, it is for now. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was. We did, we did a couple of dates that had been, you know, like a lot of dates have been moved. Some of them for you know two years now. Um, but we, we had some dates that were outstanding, but we couldn't get Steve Nive into the country because the border from France, where he lives, is still closed. So we enlisted. Uh, I didn't really think there was a viable keyboard deputy. You know, there's not many people think and play like Steve. And with just two shows to do, uh, I, I, I thought it would be more fun to play a, as a two-guitar lineup and just change the whole mood, you know. So we invited Charlie Sexton to play with us, and we had fun doing that. So we then invited him to do this 22-date run, uh, which at the time, I, you know, Icon was 
I didn't think he'd be able to do it because I assumed that sooner or later Bob Dylan would go out. Um, but at that time, there were no shows planned. So Charlie came with us and he made the decision to, you know, do that. So uh, uh, obviously that was, uh, you know, a, a sort of little bit of stroke of luck, really. There, there was no immediate plan. And, you know, you never know when people... There are people that have cancelled their shows two or three times. So we have one big date next May, which has already been moved four times, you know, and... Uh, so that we don't control those things because nobody does at the moment, you know. But it was very wonderful to play again. We started out in a studio in Memphis, Memphis Magnetic, and we both, you know, rehearsed, learned. We hadn't played for 18 months, which is as long as I hadn't been on stage, I think, since probably 1989. Uh, so just to play together again uh, in, in the same room was great. And we had to learn, you know, how to play these new songs that we recorded last year all at once because we didn't we didn't make this record uh, in a studio. We made it from our respective lairs and just sort of didn't think too hard about the fact there were thousands of miles between us because, well, as you know, you separate things in the studio for clarity and you often add things after the fact to a, a band performance. All we were doing was, you know, the series of exchanges and additions were happening at some speed between us all, but from thousands of miles apart. And then, the, fortunately, we were we were confident enough in what we were doing that it all was vivid, and Sebastian was able to mix it all together in a way that was coherent. And I have an honest feeling that we might have played with less inhibition because we were alone and nobody's watching you. It's a strange thing to say, as if you suddenly become self-conscious, but. When you've made a lot of records together, the red light goes on and you go, let's make this better than every other record we've ever made. That's kind of asking a lot. If you just play the song the way you feel it, you're probably going to get there quicker. And that's what we did. So we went on and did those dates. And, you know, it was great to have a whole stack of new songs to play because it changes everything. It changes the mood. You're presenting things. People are listening very hard because they've never even heard of these songs. And they were also hearing us the imposters take possession of some of the songs from Hey Clockface, so they all change shape as well. Those songs kind of opened up in all sorts of different ways. So you can imagine that had a pretty strong impact on familiar songs that we might be expected to play, because they were keeping different company than just the last time we played, which was, as I say, 18 months ago. The, the new album is your sixth release or project since October last year. I mean, that is a phenomenal yeah. effort. And it's not all of it either. There's 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 more, you know. So um, it's just a period where we weren't, you know, on the road. I had obviously begun recording uh, early last year when you could do something kind of completely carefree and say, oh, I think I'll go to Helsinki to record. I think I'll go to Paris. Now that seems like really luxurious. But I had all that music and I had to make sense of that when we were forced to come home. And then I had a stack of ideas more than finished songs. And then I f finished those, having concluded and delivered Hey Clockface. We already had Spanish Model ready to release, but there were, nobody wanted to release it while things were in such disarray. And we'd been working on the Armed Forces box set. And then I, I had suddenly had a period where I wrote a group of you know, I had a guitar in my hands for for songwriting for the first time in a number of years, and that changes it a little bit. 
uh, might have made a conscious decision to go into major keys for a lot of the time because I do tend to kind of have this sort of fado kind of instinct for playing him slow minor key songs and the and Pete around the time that Pete Thomas said I'm fed up being going down in my basement playing every day playing along with my favorite records there's nothing more to play and I said well how about this and the next thing we were we were making this you know having this conversation and sending it back and forward it wasn't really much different than if I'd shown him the song and we'd gone into the studio and cut it uh, Pete and I cut a whole album in two days once, you know, with just the two of us, a, an album of demos for a, a record I wrote for a singer called Wendy James. So I know that we're a good rhythm section, even if it's just me singing and him playing drums and me filling out the guitar and, you know, on occasion add the bass even. But of course, we just sent it to Davey and then sent it on to Steve who at first did have a complaint that we hadn't left anything for him to do, but of course he quickly found something great to do, you know. Uh, but we knew we were about something that was coming out at you, because if he felt that it was complete before he had played, I knew the songs must be fairly fairly vivid, you know. And they felt that way. And uh, that's, they felt that way when we played them in concert as well, you know. very much enjoyed the Spanish album and I like the French language EP Thank as you. well. You may have been misquoted some years ago, I'm not sure, but I, I believe that at one stage you were reported as saying that you weren't going to make any albums anymore. Fortunately, that, that wasn't true. But this well, it was sort of true. It was true for a couple of years. I mean, I think sometimes the business 
side of music gets in your head a bit. And I had been used to, you know, it had been, you know, I don't know whether, I didn't feel as if I had a sense of entitlement to ever do anything. I knew I had to earn it. And I had made this record in 2010, which I thought was as good as I could write. And I had been on the road with a really interesting, very, very wonderful band, which was an acoustic band. And we had had some tremendous shows. We'd made two albums in quick succession, uh, the second of which was National Ransom. That, you know, if you had to, if you held a gun to my head and said, name 10 songs that you, that mass, that, that you would put your, ne- you know, your stake your reputation on, at least three from that record would be in 10 out of 45 years. So that's quite a high strike rate when you think what else there is. Um, but it didn't, that re- the release of that record didn't call for us to play one performance the week after, from the week after the record came out. The band basically broke up because, you know, they had lots of other things to do. And I thought that was too bad. And I, I was discouraged in with regard to thinking, well, the rhythm of my working life had been about making records and then going and playing that music. So I figured that must have come to an end. Uh, I don't know, maybe this is something to do with the way the, you know, everything about the business is, is, is changing and you could say evolving or certainly I'm not needed here. Um, so maybe I should put my energies into making the shows as exceptional. And that's what I did for the next sort of a few years. I created stage shows like a like you know like an impresario, one of them being the spectacular spinning songbook revival, the second being detour, and I had a ball because I could put all of my repertoire in play, either by chance or by theme, and I had lots of different ways to play them, and just when I thought I wasn't going to do anything else in the studio, I got invited in to do Wise Up Ghosts with Stephen Mandel and Questlove. And no sooner have we done that, the T-Bone rang me and said, do you want to come into this band and play these Bob Dylan lyrics and turn those into songs? Well, why would you turn that down? It was wonderful to be part of that unit uh, that assembled around that notion. I got to play with some people I didn't know, a couple I did. And, of course, all of that just reintroduced what it, how great it is to make records. And... By which point, I, you know, my friendship with Sebastian Kreese had given me a couple of opportunities to make records. I then decided that it was, if I only made one more record, you know, I like to think of each one as maybe the last one so you get it right, you know, so you put it on yourself to do the best you can in case there isn't another occasion. And we made Look Now, which was a sort of summary of one approach to pop songwriting that I really uh, appreciate, which is the sort of uptown pop song, orchestrated pop song with a strong rhythm section. And I don't know what happened after that. I just suddenly, I guess I just, it caught, it caught, you know, my, my uh, fancy again to make records. And next thing I know, we're making them every, every you know, it seems like we're constantly recording. And, uh, you know, obviously some chance things have to sometimes come into it being asked to remix this year's girl for a television show for David Simon's The Deuce caused us to open up the multi-tracks for uh, this year's model. Uh, But, you know, it's quite a big leap to then say, let's do it with every track but in Spanish. But I did that nonetheless, and because I had a cohort who could tell me whether that was an insane idea. And Tomasian's reaction was, yes, it is an insane idea, but let's do it anyway, because I think I know who you could approach. 
and you know he has been a tremendous friend in many many ways in both in finding the way to for the uh, imposters to make a record at the level of look now where their individual talents are heard as they are today not in a reference to the way two or three of us used to play a long time ago and then to sort of find people who would come into something as unusual as Spanish model with a lot of heart and wit and you know a whole new set of talents there's all sorts of people singing on this record people I already knew people I admired people who are huge pop stars that didn't need to do it that came in and did a fantastic job, you know, and they, I love the fact that, you know, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in Latin America, somebody's dancing around in their bedroom to, you know, Sebastian Yatra singing Lara, which is Big Tears, the B-side of Pump It Up, and they have no idea who I am or who wrote that song. They just like that because they like, like Yatra, you know. That's kind of back to what I wanted to do originally, which was be a songwriter. <laughs> so, And the attractions... Uh, performances, even my own uh, contribution to that, sounded pretty fine when we pushed the faders up. Sebastian mixed it very powerfully around these very different singers. Some of them much more melodious singers than me, with prettier voices, and of course several of them young women whose take on the lyrics, you know, sort of flipped everything around in what the songs were originally about, because a lot of them were about desire and glamour and disguise. So you like you got La Chica Hoy by uh, Cami, who is a a, a young twenty uh, four year old singer from Chile who is in the you know the bright moment of her pop career. She can speak with authority about being the gaze of of uh, people to her, and she's looking out at that rather different than me, you know, at twenty four or twenty three writing that song. Uh, somewhere in all of that, obviously. There's a lot of energy in all of this music that we've been talking about, including the the noisier songs that I did in Helsinki last last uh, February. That was a kind of rock and roll too. So it wasn't really that unexpected that the next group of songs picked up the tempo a bit. And it seemed to be the right thing to do in the circumstances, not to be uh, not to be sort of cowering and feeling very sorry for yourself because the world's changed shape a little bit because we don't control it and we don't know when it, anything would return to any semblance of normality, so you might as well just have fun. Attractions helped out by Cami and the Spanish album. This year's girl, La Chica 
De Hoy and the album, the Spanish album, This Year's Model, recorded in Spanish. And our special guest this week is Elvis Costello, talking about his brand new album, The Boy Named If. And of course, we heard a little bit about that Spanish album. We heard the title track of the latest album. As well as that, we heard the first single release from the album, Magnificent Hurt, subtitled Money. Question mark. Let's return to our interview with Elvis Costello. If is a name for your imaginary friend, and I could immediately identify with that because I had a young nephew who had an imaginary friend, and it wasn't, it was. To him, it was real, so I could understand the concept immediately about that. And I was wondering where you got the inspiration from. There's something endearing about the notion of, an, you know, a child excusing certain things or having certain flights of fancy that involve an imaginary presence. I don't know what psychologists think that is. There's also a slightly sinister element to it that I sort of feel is a bit like a turn of the screw, you know. You can look at it like that. And as you get older and when you continue to advance this alibi for your transgressions, I think it becomes much less endearing. You know, when it becomes, oh, I had to stay out all night. Oh, you know, I had to sleep with her. She made me do it. That isn't, you know, that's just bad behavior that, that is immature would be the way people sometimes describe it, at willful would be another way, cruel sometimes. Uh, so the song travels through all of that territory. It doesn't start out with the fantastic and the chorus describes uh, some sort of wonder, you know, of going into the magic land of a, instead of saying, let's go to the movies, you know, it, it has to be even more romantic, you know, the way it's described. And, and uh, it says, we'll dance, you know, we'll run along the strand and fill our pockets up with sand and dance in frantic passes till the grains all turn to glasses. So that, that obviously can't happen. You can't dance that fast that you, you turn sand into glass. But that's the whole point. There's a few things in the song that have, are come from a sort of fantastic world and i suppose that thread of musing on these the, this period in life is uh, partly about that the uh, departure from inner innocence and a sort of uh, unself-conscious access to imagination and wonder when you can dance or skip or stand on your head without in any way feeling foolish in fact you love to do it you can versify pull funny faces uh, draw fantastic inventions that can't possibly exist in reality and then they force you to learn algebra you know and makes all that takes all that magic away around the same time that maybe you sense desires and impulses that you don't understand properly and in the period of ignorance before you understand them or even can control them there are times when other people can use that ignorance against you and it can be an innocent thing or it can be a mischievous thing but it is a real thing and it's not abuse i'm talking about i'm talking about just that a sort of slight cruelty that can be between children you know and uh, when i say children i'm talking about people around 13 and so that's what is described in the refrain of the death of magic thinking you know she took my hand in an ex in an experiment put it where it shouldn't be put it underneath a dress and waited to see i didn't know what to do i didn't know what to say it was just a game i i, I guess one i didn't know how to play it's not a crime it's just and it's not a judgment it's just something that happens 
evening, angels strumming over here. 27 seconds to touchdown, switch on the landing lights. I turned up the radio, one day I'll buy a ticket for any place that I want to go. Now that I am so So many songs you know, in popular music that portray the female uh, object in the song as a temptress. And sadly, many more recently that speak of some cruel and wicked imbalance of power between men and women and all sorts of things that acknowledge the advantage taken by a man of a woman. But not so many that speak of this moment of uncertainty and vertigo that could be a girl or a boy, it really doesn't matter. It, it just happens to be the way I said it, because I can speak most confidently uh, about having been a boy once, you know? But there, of course, there are other songs that are describing other times in life, uh, young, uh, irresponsible uh, adulthood, older, you know, un unrepentant, scandalous, scoundrel, living in exile, you know, looking back on having tempted a novice into a... Uh, love affair, you know, betraying her vows, and then later on, when he's kind of in exiled hiding, thinks back over his, you know, crimes and and still thinks of her. Maybe he actually had some sincere feeling for her, but he never knew how to express it. He only knew how to take advantage of her. So that's that story, which is the song Mr. Crescent, which closes the record. There's no particular significance of that being the last song other than it sounded like it should be the last song, you know? Sometimes we had to take the lead of what the music told us. Mr. Crescent Heard the song of both the lark and the linnet Played them both upon parlor spinning one with only nine strings in it Clinging to the sounding ball Oh, that was all it could afford Mr. Crescent Made a wager on a landing stage comes in and the starboard light is blue night green and the port light should be yellow not red 
I'm glad you mentioned that song because it's one of two great ballads on the album. P- Paint the Red Rose Blue being another one, obviously. Thank you. I mean, how difficult it is to write those. They're both musically quite simple. They don't really do anything that harmonically uh, unexpected. Red Rose has some very unusual things in the bridge, but I wanted the songs to be, you know, to carry the story. The Red Rose. You know, this, the red rose is of is you is usually a, a symbol of of romance, isn't it? It's like the rose you give, uh, you know, a Valentine's Day or, or on a birthday. Uh, it turning blue isn't about a change of allegiance or anything to do with flags or malice. It's totally to do with the the mood that's usually represented with blue. You know, melancholy, and the, and the story is about a couple who have been through some sort of terrible sorrow. To the point that they they've actually lost the the place in love between them, and they're trying to find it. It's that's what it, that's why the rose has turned blue. That's quite simple idea in some ways, but it it's also maybe portrait of at least the man maybe as somebody who has actually flirted with darkness as a kind of uh, like it says theatrical blood is convenient to spill. Is actually maybe invited that kind of darkness in and when it arrives with full force it's overwhelming and you have to rebuild belief you know so it's um you know it's a it's not an easy topic for a song so i thought it should have a, a really a, a melody that that really kind of fell on the ear invitingly and i believe it does and I, and even to the extent that when I began to record it, because again, <clears throat> we didn't always start the way we would, certainly with a song based on the piano. It's one of the only songs written on the piano for this record. I just put my vocal mic, this one I'm speaking on, um, into my wife's Steinway. I just cl- opened it and put it and closed the lid and didn't imagine for a moment that that would be the sound on the record. But if you actually listen to the piano part of the Red Rose, it's very, very simple. It's um, you know, it's it's about at the extent of my ability, which is pretty limited. Whereas if Steve had been in the studio with me, he might have expanded it, changing the the, the uh, dynamic of the song. And it kept very small, which is what I wanted. And then, obviously, Steve's contribution were these lovely hell tones that worked in and around the chords. So some of the circumstances of how we recorded it affected the way the records turned out, you know. Same with uh, Mr. Crescent. I just played it with just a very, very simple acoustic guitar and everything else just grew around it. But we'd know right away if something was too much, you know, because if it got in the way of the story, it wasn't right. You was the youngest of five 
and the only son He called his wife by a nickname As his father had done Not the root, not the branch Not the flower stand He had the wildest of dreams Lowe said that when he writes songs, he's always writing, thinking that someone else is going to record them. And the, the song Paint the Red Rose Blue, to me, has a lot of longevity to it. I'm wondering, who would you like to record it as well? Because I can see it being recorded by, I was just immediately struck, maybe Kurt Elling or someone like that would do a nice version of it. Yeah. Maybe Diana would do a nice version as well. I, I, yeah, well, I mean, anybody that really would take it on sincerely, uh, I don't. Not a lot of people record my songs. If you think how many that I've written, they 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 obviously prevent uh, present a challenge in many cases because of the volume of words, which is more than some singers want to negotiate or can't negotiate because rhythmically they just don't do that. Some of the songs that I wrote with Bert Bacharach are actually quite difficult to sing, and even more superficially more accomplished singers than me have tried and failed to sing them. But. Um, I, I haven't really ever imagined, uh, I've written lots of songs with somebody in my mind, even somebody that I never didn't know and would never meet, and some people that had already left this place. But um, I hadn't really thought of that, to be honest. But I, if anybody who did want to sing it, I'm sure it would be lovely. I didn't imagine anybody else singing these songs uh, because, you know, I was working quite quickly. And as I'd finished them, we began recording them. And next thing I knew, we'd, we'd finished the record. It didn't really take very long. So maybe I didn't even have time to think about that, you know? It was a, but it's a nice thought. She was a part-time waitress With a dream of greatness That nobody knew Or even suspected Though it was sometimes reflected In the slant of a mirror It was buried so deep and so dear Caught the eye of a guy passing by He said, why, if I prove to be faithful She's showing me, no, why, oh, why You probably know why But then again, you may say, mister You've got enough, most of us never get Just what we deserve I'll smile sweetly I'm here as you serve us And the camera walks us through and through Sunlit And that's a take You are my most beautiful mistake It's not your reputation I'm trying to besmirch I'm here undercover 
I'm writing this screenplay You might be my inspiration It's beyond my control So it's my soul Full and wounded expression That you'd like to console There's a hand that lingers a little too long There are lies you will hear But they're singing right now Right here Right here in this song And the lens pulls the focus on us And that's a take You are my most beautiful mistake You made a portrait of her face Out of burnt out matches She said the trouble is sunshine I know what the catch is You'll offer me nothing You'll offer me riches I've seen your kind before in courtroom sketches From a booth in the corner From a different perspective Where a man plays the fool Or a private detective He wrote a name out in sugar On a farm bike accountant You could be the game that captures the hunter Went out for cigarettes As the soundtrack played The Marvelettes Let me check the script Check the continuity You'll be up on that screen for eternity The billboard will spin That look, that's it Take a little pill and you will get over it The light will hit you if you drop CD, I presume, will both come with an 88-page book, and there are some, there are fables or stories in it uh, yeah. written, written by you, and m magnificent illustrations in that particular book, and that adds a whole new dimension to the album, of course, doesn't it? It's not... yeah, well, it's 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 something. At the time when we were making it, there was there was a sort of a vinyl scare, so to speak. You know, that was you know, these days the 
the physical object at the center of the story of a record release I think needs to be something you can physically hold in your hand. It's very hard to catch hold of the, the bytes that, you know, a download, let alone a stream. You can't hold that in any way. And it, it encourages the feeling that music is ephemeral. And it's hard to even propose that people think for a moment to listen to the whole story before they move on. Because it's like throwing twigs or fish into the river, you know, it just kind of, they all just sink or float, you know, uh, and float away. But with there being, you know, my chosen delivery for records is these days vinyl again, because I like the scale of it for the artwork and I like the sound of vinyl better than CD. That's my preference. Not everybody agrees with me on that. So I was told that we could have CDs and I thought, well, they're little things that aren't very substantial to hold. And this does, the title of the record is The Boy Named Different Other Children's Tales. So why not make that a reality? Um, create this book and I, I fully expected somebody to say oh that's ridiculous that would just be too expensive or we could never do that but much to my surprise everybody said yes and I wrote the stories you know in a kind of, with the same title as the songs sometimes setting the scene for the song sometimes a postscript to the song sometimes background detail to the song sometimes the relationship of the of the song and the story might not be that obvious to to the reader uh, so because i didn't want to make it a necessity that you read it you could enjoy the song without ever reading those tales but if you did happen to want that book uh, there there are six thousand of them they're all signed they're all numbered so they are something that is each one they're unique and uh, thank you for saying that about the illustrations. That's something that I've done over the last few years. It's I find a lot of comfort in just drawing. I never learned any technical skills. I didn't go to art school or anything. I don't know. I couldn't do any of those things with a pen or a paintbrush, but I can do them with an electric pencil, which allows you access to the imitation of various pictorial uh, techniques without learning how to actually do them with uh, something as wet as paint or ink. Uh, but then David Hockney paints with, on an iPad, so I'm, I'm, I'm absolved from any guilt. Um, it, I also, if you really want to know, uh, in 2018, it was, a, you know, it was a year of some challenge. I, I had an operation which was, was something that took care, which avoided serious illness. So nothing more need be said about that. It was something nobody would have known about if I hadn't had to cancel some shows. And um, but then in the in the in the summer, and my mother had a very serious stroke. And you know, being in her in her nineties, there there was a good chance she wouldn't recover. And I of course went to England, sat with her, and ended up sitting in the hospital ward for five weeks, with the strong suspicion that the doctors were wrong in one regard, that she would not speak other than courtesy words. I just had an instinct about it because a few times that she sort of she slept a lot but when she came to there were some responses to things around her that I recognized as her true personality and patiently we saw that come to a reality and although she was seriously impaired lost the, the ability to stand they lost the right side really she did regain a lot of cohesion to her thought and even with difficulty speech and it gave her two more years. She passed in January. Well, while I was there, uh, you can't sing. You can't be in a hospital ward with other people screaming, sleeping, moaning, complaining, whatever. You can't make a lot of noise. And often you're watching that person sleep and you don't know whether they're going to wake up. So it was good to have something that was involving and some way uh, 
I guess, consoling, you know. And I started to do these cartoons for all sorts of occasions. Uh, I put them on record sleeves, I put them on the video backdrop. They amused me and they annoyed some people, which made me just want to do more of them, you know. And then with this collection, I had really a, a reason to do them, you know, but they came from a really uh, personal place. Uh, that I that I, they're not of any value artistically, but they're of value emotionally to me because of the origin of them, particularly all the more now. And uh, so I thought, well, as there are themes of uh, the emergence of childhood, it's an appropriate moment. Even though I'd written all the songs before my mother passed, it's uh, not without dishonour that there, this record and the whole thing should exist. Really, I think she would have got a kick out of it. You know. I went to latest album The Boy Named Gift that's Elvis Costello with The Imposters featuring Steve Naive The Man You Love to Hate and we were talking to Elvis about the album the other tracks we heard My Most Beautiful Mistake Paint the Red Rose Blue beautiful ballad wasn't it Mr. Crescent The Death of Magic Thinking and we heard a little excerpt of the Spanish album I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea and uh, that was uh, a track that appeared on that Spanish album, this year's model, recorded in Spanish with some special guests. I hope you enjoyed our interview this week. If you'd like to find out more about Rhythms magazine, just go to rhythms.com.au. And why don't we finish our Elvis Costello special with a song that he recorded when he was simply known as Declan McManus or DP McManus. And he recorded a couple of demos in his bedroom in late 1975, early 1976. And he sent them into Charlie Gillett, who was doing a very influential radio show in London called Honky Tonk, with a note that said, I hope one day I'll be famous enough that you'll be able to auction this tape off on your radio show. Well, indeed, Elvis did become very famous. And here's one of those songs that he recorded and sent in as a demo tape and was the first time that I ever heard of Elvis Costello, although then, as I mentioned, he was D.P. McManus. This is Wave a White Flag. Take off your shoes, hang up your wings, stack up the chairs, roll up the rug, savor the things that sobriety brings, draining the last from a jug but when I hit the bottle there's no telling what I'll do 
But something deep inside me wants to turn you black and blue I can't resist you, I can't wait To twist your loving arms till you capitulate Beat me in the kitchen and I'll beat you in the hall There's nothing I love better than a free-for-all To take your pretty neck and see which way it bends But when it is all over we will still be friends Wave a white flag, put away the pistol Too many people just can't get kissed But if there's nothing I can do to make amends, baby Hope you don't murder me Was it all right or was it okay? I'll make it all up to you someday. Oh, but you didn't have to laugh that way. Oh, no, you didn't have to laugh that way. Wave a white flag, put away the pistol. Too many people just can't get kissed But if there's nothing I can do to make amends, baby Hope you don't murder me Gee, baby Hope you don't murder me